Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. You can find the sermon outline and video for this message at enewlife.com or the New Life Church Kahana mobile app. Good morning, New Life Gehanna. How you doing? You all look like you got, like, I don't know, you slept longer or something last night. The nine o'clock was packed this morning. I can't imagine why. And that eight o'clock one this morning had a few people at it, too. This is the good one, and the Buckeyes let you go to bed in the third quarter last night. That helped, too, right? Well... This has been an interesting weekend for me. I uh, got hit with food poisoning Friday afternoon. So um, let me give you a new weight loss program. Yeah, not at the top of my list, which is why the chair is here, just in case. Um, I told him a chair and a bucket would be maybe more, uh, too much, TMI? Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, well. We, uh, if you hadn't noticed, there's an election coming up. Um, yeah, it's been going for two years, remember? <laughs> and so uh, today, uh, I wanted to spend some time, and I hope by the end of today's message, you will know exactly which party stands for God, <laughs> and, and which candidate. You, some of you really thought I was serious there. <laughs> That's awesome. And which candidate is more spiritual than the other, okay? Um, I did, I got tickled. My, my, uh, I saw something on Facebook that said in New York City there were 62 write-in candidates that you could vote for, and I thought, well, amongst 62, you should be able to find somebody. Yeah. So we are, that's not what we're going to do today. But on this uh, weekend before the election, in the midst of our series on prayer, Today we're going to talk about praying for our nation, and there are, there are notes in your worship folder this morning. Praying for our nation as well as living before our nation, because I think both these, these things are important. So before we uh, open up the word, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is practical, that it addresses issues that are critical today. God, we want to be obedient to your word. We want to be people who truly pray for our nation, who live out our faith within our nation and before our nation in a way that is right and is pleasing. God, today may we hear your voice and may we obey it. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to look at two passages uh, today. We're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. I still am getting tickled that some of you thought I was serious a minute ago. Okay. (laughs) I want us to consider two questions this weekend. The first is, how are we to pray for our nation? How are we to pray for our nation? Not just during this year's election, but on, on an ongoing basis. And number two, how are we living out the gospel to our nation? 
So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 as we begin. In this passage, we're going to see that prayer must be the key element in our life. Prayer must be the key element in our life. Starting in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this passage is really pretty simple to understand, I think. All sorts of prayer for all sorts of people. We are to pray for others, especially those who are our leaders. So let's uh, dig in just a little bit, see what we find here. First, we're to pray for others. We see the importance of the command to pray for others in this passage. Well, why Paul thinks this is of first importance becomes clear when we look at the preceding context. Remember that when reading Scripture, we can't just pull out a verse and decide what it means. We need to look at it within the context of what is surrounding it. So notice the word then. Some of you have a version that says, therefore, in verse 1. First of all, then, or therefore, I urge you to pray for all men. That word alerts us to the fact that Paul's commands to pray for all men is a conclusion based upon something that he has said. And I believe that's in the preceding verses of chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says this, This I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may, listen, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Paul tells Timothy to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And he warns Timothy that if you reject a good conscience, you, may, you make shipwreck of your life. A good conscience is a conscience that does not condemn you for the things you do or don't do. And therefore, what Paul is saying is that in order for your ship of faith to stay afloat, you need to see to it that you don't do the things your conscience condemns or leave undone the things that your conscience demands, that you are sensitive to it. We can all understand, I think, this connection between a clear conscience and a vibrant faith if we just think about our own experience, right? At least my experience confirms it. If I fall into a habit that my conscience condemns, if the Spirit is telling me this is not right, what eventually happens is that my conscience then begins to accuse me, okay? It changes from a conviction of the Spirit to an accusation of the conscience. The enemy begins to work starts to say, you talk about trusting Christ, but it's not really what you believe because if you trusted him, you wouldn't go on with this behavior or attitude. And it starts to accuse us, right? You see, a bad conscience begins to drill little holes into the belly of the ship of faith until one of two things happens. Either we confirm the genuineness of our faith by changing our ways. That's called repentance, turning and going another direction. And, by, and that and plugging up the holes of that bad conscience. Or we show that our faith never was seaworthy, and we sink into unbelief. This is what Paul is warning about. 
And this is what I think Paul does in verse 1 of chapter 2. Since you must keep a good conscience in order to not make shipwreck of your faith, therefore I urge you first to pray for all men. At the top of Paul's list of things that we have to do in order to keep a clear conscience is to pray for other people. Why is that? Well, praying for others can steer us clear. I think, of falling into sin, sin habits because we aren't so self-absorbed, because that's really what sin is, isn't it? It's a self-absorption where we're wanting what we want, when we want it, how we want it. And praying for others steers us from that place to where we're focused on the needs of others. You see, this place of self-absorption is the place where we are most vulnerable to sin. Prayer is spiritual protection. Not just for those that we pray for, but for ourselves. It is a covering and a protection. Think about this also. In addition to be this, being this covering and protection, prayer reaches further in its effects than anything else we can do. Now, before satellites were orbiting the earth, and some of you, you're going, there was a time when satellites didn't orbit the earth? Well, there were these things called black and white TV sets. Yes, black and white, two colors. And we use these things called rabbit ears, okay? And there were these, okay? Those of you who reject cable still know what these are. I get it, okay. We were big time in our house, though. We had a, a, an, oh, uh, like a round one, too. And that let us get PBS. Thus bringing our choices up to four. Some of you are starting to sweat right now. Four! Anyway. Okay, before these satellites were orbiting the Earth, we could broadcast a TV program live across the country, but not around the world. The signal would only go so far. But now it's easy to reach the other side of the world with a live broadcast. We send our signal out into space and it bounces off the satellite to other parts of the world. And that is the way it is with prayer. Without it, we can influence things nearby close to us, and if we wait long enough, certainly our influence can have a wider impact. But God's influence is everywhere and immediate. So when we pray, we can reach around the world in an instant. If you and I want to do the most good possible to the most people in the time that we have, we will turn to God first. Who influences, whose influence reaches without interruption to every molecule and every mind in the universe. Prayer for men and women, for others, is a protection for them and for ourselves. And it is also a way that we can influence others in a way we could never influence otherwise. Second, Pray specific prayers for specific people. Not only are we to pray for others, but we are to pray specific prayers for specific people. Now, let's consider the breadth or the scope of Paul's commands to do this. Listen, make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all men, for kings, and all who are in high positions. Now, here's an honesty test. Have you ever been tempted to pray like this? God bless everybody in the best way possible. To you be the glory, amen. The laughter tells me the answer. 
That covers everything, right? A text like this, which commands us to pray for how many? All men might tempt you to pray in these sweeping generalizations like that, since you can't begin to name all men. But God has not taught us to pray like that. And I can assure you that Jesus could not have spent whole nights in prayer if that's how he prayed. Now, it's a great blessing if each day we have our daily bread. It is a blessing if our trespasses are forgiven. It is a blessing if we are not led into temptation but delivered from evil. But Jesus does not teach us to say, bless the Lord. He teaches us to say, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We have not been taught to pray broad, sweeping generalities like God bless the missionaries. We have been taught to pray about particular kinds of problems. Now that means becoming educated and knowing enough to pray specifically. You see, when Paul needed help, he asked it for himself in very specific terms. Therefore, I don't think that the demand of 1 Timothy 2.1 will be satisfied by praying, God bless all men everywhere, amen. What Paul seems to be saying is this, Timothy, push past the boundaries of your concern. Do not let your prayers be limited to any one group of people or kind of people. Enlarge the circle of your love. Do not be sectarian or nationalistic or elitist or racist in your prayers. Let your prayers embrace all kinds of people. High and low, black and white, Democrats and Republicans, ISIS commanders and Chinese dictators. Enlarge your heart until it embraces the world. One leader put it this way. Go to school at Calvary until you hate the bigotry and racism of the Ku Klux Klan and the neo-Nazis and can pray with yearning love in your hearts for these men and women. Isn't Paul's point the same as Jesus was when he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. To put it another way, there is no category of people of whom it can be said you should not pray for them. This is a message for our time. This is a time of individualism, of division, of lack of humility, of hatred and bigotry, as well as a seeming refusal to hear any other voice or opinion besides the one I espouse. Jesus warned us in Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because wickedness is multiplied, listen, most men's love will grow cold. 
let it be said of New Life Church, look how they love each other. Look how they do good to those who hate them and bless those who curse them and pray for those who abuse them. Look at the wideness of the scope of their prayers. And then people will see that there is a God of grace in heaven. And he, is on earth, he has on earth a peculiar people who are not conformed to this age or this decade. We are to pray for others. We are to pray specific prayers for specific people. And third, we are to pray for our leaders. After Paul is stressed that we pray for all men, he singles out kings and all in high positions to make sure that we include them. Now, I can see at least two reasons why it's hard to include leaders in our prayers. The first, if you think about the context and the time in which Paul is writing, is that these people had characteristics that made it especially difficult for early Christians to pray for them. For example, they were so distant, so remote, if not in actual miles, at least in accessibility. It's hard to pray earnestly for someone that you don't know, and especially hard to pray for somebody you never see. Yet this difficulty has to be overcome. And Paul says, you must pray for them. Now think about what Paul was saying and apply it to our times. Paul was saying to Christians, pray for emperors like Nero, governors like Pilate, and kings like Herod. They may seem remote and inaccessible, but remember they are not remote and inaccessible to God. And by prayer, you can get as close as their intimate advisors. You see, praying for leaders has an impact far greater than griping about them on Facebook. Sorry, I got off script there for just a second. Another characteristic that makes rulers hard to pray for is that they are often godless men and women, insensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Now, this was almost universally true in Paul's day. Think of who we just talked about. Nero, Pilate, and Herod, among others. Do we know anything about these guys? Not nice guys. Most countries of our world today, I think this is probably true too. Even in our own country, I am not automatically enthused when a politician claims to have had a religious experience. It does not matter where or when we have lived. To obey God's command to pray for all those in high positions will involve us praying for many people indifferent and hostile to our faith. But this should not cause us to hesitate one moment to pray for them first because God may save them and bring them to a knowledge of the truth. And second, because God uses rulers to accomplish his purposes whether they believe in him or not. You see, this is a test of our belief in the sovereignty of God. No king, no president, no dictator, no ISIS leader can stay the hand of the Lord when he has purposed to do a thing. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans of the mind of a man or of a king, 
but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. Therefore, we have a strong encouragement to pray for kings, for those in high positions, whether they are believers or not, because our God reigns and there is no one more powerful than him. Now, our prayers for those in high positions go beyond a prayer for their conversion or even sanctification. For that we must pray or we disobey the Lord. But now we know that God also can do his purposes even through rulers who remain impenitent. Realize that through them, God is able to do so much good for others, whether the kings know it or not. Paul's thought seems to be something like this. If you want your prayers to do the most good for the greatest number of people, be sure to include in your prayers those persons whose decisions create the conditions in which the purposes of the gospel prosper. It is important to pray for leaders because the conditions they create either advance or impede the gospel. Now, we may get in our head what that means, but let me challenge you with this. And I've said this many times over the years. Several years ago, I was in China meeting with underground pastors who had all, who had all snuck into where we were meeting to even meet with us. At the end of our time together, we said, how can we pray for you? The pastor said, well, we can tell you how not to pray because you Americans tend to pray one thing for us. We would ask that you not pray that the persecution against Christians end because the gospel thrives under persecution in our country. See, because when someone gives their life to Christ and accepts his call into their call into his family, they're serious. This is a serious consequence that they are accepting. Do not pray that persecution ends. Now, wouldn't we have a tendency to say, God, give us the leaders who help us help the gospel prosper, who make it easy on us? But let me remind you that sometimes and many times, the gospel prospers under opposition. It's important to pray for leaders because the conditions they create can advance or impede the gospel depending upon the sovereign will of God for that moment. One final note on this passage before we move on. Number four, pray with thanksgiving for the spread of the gospel, Paul tells us. Look at this. Our prayers must include thanksgiving. Ever had a hard time at that when you're praying for your nation? Let me remind you that even a bad king is better than anarchy. Paul wrote this. When Paul wrote this, he was probably under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial before Nero, who eventually had him executed. Therefore, Paul is not naive when he says, I urge that thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings and all those in high positions. That list didn't just say supplications and prayers. It said thanksgivings be made for those in high positions. He sees things in a much larger perspective than merely in relation to his own life and his own ministry. The same emperor who executes Paul maintains the peace in the provinces where the gospel was spreading like wildfire. So our prayers for kings should be seasoned with thanks. 
But the main thing Paul mentions is the content of our prayer for kings and those in high positions is this, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and respectfulness. Interesting. So if we read that, is it true in the last analysis that all we're really after in praying for our leaders is peace and tranquility? Well, let's look at this. Verse 3 and 4 sharpen the focus of what Paul is really after. Why pray that rulers will keep the peace? Because this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God approves of our prayers for peace and tranquility because he approves for the advancement of the gospel. Peace is not the main thing. Salvation is the main thing. Tranquility is not the goal. The knowledge of the truth of God, that's the goal. You see the difference? That the final goal is not peace and tranquility. They're a way for salvation and the truth and the knowledge of the gospel to be understood and known. Let's not forget, church, that we are aliens and exiles here. We are not at home. Not in America or Russia or Israel or anywhere in this world. We do not pray simply for the prosperity of any land. We pray for the magnificent advancement of the saving purposes of God in every land. And to that end, we can say this and pray this. Almighty God, ruler of heaven and earth, grant to people in high positions that the decisions they make will create the conditions in which the good news of Jesus Christ will bear the most fruit for the salvation of men and women for your glory. Now, I hope we'll apply this principle of prayer these next few days. And I would encourage you, tomorrow night from 7 to 8.15 in the prayer chapel, there is gonna, we're going to have a prayer meeting, especially for our nation and for this election. Tomorrow night, I'd encourage you to be there. Consider this with me. This discipline of taking everything and everyone to God in prayer will create in us and should create in us a lifestyle that Paul describes in 1 Timothy 1.5 when he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith that prayer creates in us a different way of living and that it shows up in our conduct. And so we want to turn to Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30, and look at the fact that the gospel must set the standard of conduct for my life. As we read this passage, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see, and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of them, of their destruction, but your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. 
Let's look at just a few things I think Paul is saying here and things we need to know to understand this fully. Keep in mind that, number one, under Roman rule, persecution of Christ's followers was intensifying. This was not a pro-Christian environment that they were living in. A little study of history tells you some interesting things. Christians then were often described as a class hated for their abominations. And they were guilty of hatred of the human race. As a matter of fact, Romans did not even consider Christianity a religion, but a deadly superstition. And hence, worthy of repression. Early Christians, because of this, expected suffering. I think that's what the Chinese pastors were getting at. Christ had died on the cross, and so there was no higher honor than to imitate that death through accepting martyrdom, what was then called a witness by one's blood. Amazingly, the apostle Peter wrote in his first letter, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Number two, Paul uses this phrase, your manner of life. Make sure that the manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is likely talking about one's civic conduct in relationship with government. This is one of the places where Paul basically says, we are under the authority of a government. Jesus did the same thing. But Jesus and Paul were accused of treason. But we know that the truth was that they advocated submission to governmental authorities. The manner of your life should be under the authority of the government over you. Number three, in him, in Christ, we died to sin and were buried. In him, we are raised to new life, right? This is when we baptize here. What, what is the picture of baptism? That we have died to sin and we are buried but they, we are raised to new life in the resurrection. If we have died to sin and have been raised to a new kind of life, how can we continue to live in sin? How could the manner of your life be lived in a way that wasn't worthy of the gospel of Christ? The gospel sets an entirely new standard of conduct. That's what Paul's getting at here. Number four, if we receive the forgiveness of sins by grace... How then can we refuse as Christians to forgive those who sin against us? If we were once alienated from God as sinners and by the gracious work of Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to God and to men, we see that in Ephesians chapter 2, then how can we refuse to be reconciled with others even though they may have sinned against us? The gospel sets a new standard for our conduct. And by his grace, we are to live up to that standard. We must forgive as we have been forgiven. We must show grace as we have been given grace. Number five, Paul urges the Philippian saints to live up to the gospel standard, whether he is present and with them or not. Now, we get this. How many of you are teachers? I'm not sure you're happy about that, the way you raised your hands, but 
How many of you have ever said this, teachers? I'm going out of the room for five minutes. I want what happens in this room in the five minutes that I'm gone to be what it would be like if I was in the room. All the while knowing that ain't going to happen, but parents, I'm running to the store for 10 minutes. Please try to keep from killing each other while I'm gone, right? That's what Paul is saying here. I want you to live up to the standard whether I'm present with you or not, whether I'm here or not. You know, our obedience to the gospel standard is, should be out of delight and not out of duty. Not just because, you know, the leader, the person in charge is there. Not just because someone is watching. Our conduct in front of others is not in order to gain their approval, but in order to represent Christ to them. And let us not forget, New Life, that we represent Christ. We are to represent Christ and not a party and not a candidate. We're to represent Christ at all times. When we are talking, okay, I'm off notes again. When we are talking about candidates and about politics and about parties, we still represent Christ. And we have to realize that whatever we say and write and type away should represent Christ. Number six, I've stopped meddling, I'm back on notes. Paul's specific instructions concern the civic conduct of the saints in the face of opposition and persecution, like we talked about. The Philippians are urged to stand and strive together for the faith of the gospel. This is called, this is a call to unity with a specific goal in mind, proclaiming the gospel of Christ to a lost community. Look at the expression he uses, striving together, that we are in this together. This implies a standing firm in the proclamation of the gospel that will take place in the face of resistance and opposition, and that discipline and perseverance are required. We must do this together. It is striving that must be done together, something like a tug of war, where every member of the team must give his or her full effort in concert with the rest of the team. We are in this together. We must strive together. We must stand firm together. If ever there was a time that the church in this country must stand firmly together, it is now. We must stand with one voice and one message, and that message is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number seven. The Philippians are not to be frightened or intimidated in any way by this opposition. We as Americans, I don't know, we really don't have a grasp of what Paul is talking about here. This is not a matter of somebody disagreeing with you on your Facebook post. This, this is persecution. This is, you gonna die. Christians in other parts of the world know what Paul means about this all too well. Today, as we sit here in a peaceful place, men and women who profess faith around the world may be beaten and raped and killed by those who oppose the gospel. In some parts of the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ are kidnapped 
and sold as slaves, if not in prison or killed. Church buildings and houses of believers may be burned down. And in many cases, employment is forbidden to Christians. In the face of such efforts to defeat and destroy Christianity, the church must stand together and stand tall. Not frightened by the evils that may come, and most importantly, not being silenced regarding our faith. And so I would commend to you what we talked about earlier, next Sunday night, to come and view the movie, The Insanity of God. It's a well-done movie just in the theater about the persecution of Christians around the world. This is one of those don't-miss opportunities. We must not fall into the trap of our culture by letting ourselves cease to engage in a discussion of gospel truth above everything else. Some of us seem to have louder voices when it comes to our political views than we do about the gospel. It is easy to want to marginalize and silence those who do not agree with us instead. If we are to be examples and testimonies of the grace of the gospel, then we must engage people in a discussion of the gospel and let the Holy Spirit use us in others' lives. Our fidelity to biblical truth, our personal holiness, our sincerity, our consistency, our ability to speak with grace and truth, our willingness, our unwillingness to confuse the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of Christ, our realism in the midst of utopian promises, our hope in the midst of fear and loathing, our winsome witness to the gospel to embody these realities week after week and not just on the second Tuesday of November. And so we pray for our nation. And I'd like you to listen as I use some of the statements and prayers of Scripture to do that. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered, not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, 
O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. This is what we need to be praying for our nation, and it starts with us in desiring to live lives that live out the gospel in front of our fellow citizens. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, said this, We must be stripped of an unhealthy and idolatrous confidence in the power of government to save us. God has given us the gift of governments in order to restrain evil, uphold righteousness, and provide for civil order. But no human ruler can save. No government or office holder can heal the human heart, solve the sin problem, or accomplish final justice. These powers belong to God and God alone. And so today... I believe that we, as God's people here at New Life, need to pray for our nation and do it correctly, asking God's sovereign will and hand to work, and that he would cause us to be living lives worthy of the gospel before those that are around us, so that our actions and our deeds match our prayers. When we begin singing in a few moments, I believe what God wants for us this weekend is to gather at these altars and come before God and ask for just that. And we start with the, uh, the repentance of our hearts because of our actions not matching the gospel before our friends and our neighbors. Oh, that we would be a place and be a kind of people that our neighbors would say, they're the ones you go to if you need help. They're the ones to go to if you have a need, if you're hurting, if you need prayer. They're the first ones to care for you. Those are the people that don't judge you if you're this or that or the other. What do they have? And what we have is Jesus. And let's remember that He is the one who impacts souls and hearts and nations. Father, we come before you. We want to be a people who are humble, who care, who love, who exemplify the grace of the gospel. And as we pray for our nation, today in this place and tomorrow night and throughout these next couple of days, and I'm sure in the days to come, may our lives be living examples of our prayers. Amen.
Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's Word and seek to know Him better through the Gospel. Our prayer is that the Gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the Word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.